Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Joining me today, we have Dr. Patricia Wright. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Amanda. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining me. I was hoping you could start by giving our listeners a little bit of information about you and your background. Oh, sure. So I, gosh, I think I'll start professionally. So professionally, I am an educator by training. I started out like you as a special educator, and I still, I still identify as a teacher. I think my concept of being a teacher has changed a lot, but um, I, uh, I started out as a special educator, and then that was uh, many years ago, and was working with people with autism, and then discovered behavior analysis and pursued training in behavior analysis, and then started working with really kind of big groups of people, so went on to study public health and learn a little bit more about that. I've had the privilege of living lots of different places. Um, I have this, uh, you know, the game when someone says, you know, tell us something, you know, unique about you when you're doing an icebreaker. Uh, I've lived in the two non-contiguous states, so both Alaska and Hawaii, and then I've lived East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, so and worked in rural and urban environments, and it's just been a really amazing, amazing career. And now I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with my wife and my old man Stan dog, and that's uh, that's my current environment. And <laughs> your old man Stan dog. <laughs> I always enjoy learning the really fun facts about uh, colleagues and friends who come on the show. So that one right there is, is a good one for me already at the beginning. You had mentioned when you were introducing yourself that you had a history and had formerly studied public safety and health. Would you be able to elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. So I was doing, actually had gone back to do my PhD at the University of Hawaii, and I was working in sample sizes. My job, I was working for the Department of Health for Hawaii, and I was working in some pretty big sample sizes. And my training was as an educator, so was familiar with classrooms and schools. And then in a behavior analysis, you know, I felt like really well trained in single case design and, you know, that, that aspect. And I wanted to get some additional knowledge about large, larger samples, you know, looking at research in different ways. I also, Amanda, have always been really committed to social justice and so wanted to get some additional training that would better address, I guess I would say, those areas of interest. So I did a Master's of Public Health in Epidemiology to learn, one, kind of get a lot stronger background in, in large-scale research, but also to really dig in to some of the aspects of you know, social determinants of health and some of those aspects that I think that I was probably missing in some of my foundational training. Wow, that's, it fits really well with what I know your skill sets to be, so it's not surprising. I just, I was um, not aware of that, so that's really intriguing to me. Thank you. I always like school too, Amanda, so right, like why not just collect the letters after your name? Just keep going. Well, <laughs> I was going to say, why not just keep learning, right? Why not just keep going? I actually tr- obtained my teaching license in Hawaii during the pandemic, and my dad said, you're not doing enough? And I was like, well, I mean, you know, it wasn't that hard to, to do a few things, and so I can relate. 
to life learning. Yep. <laughs> life, right? And, me, and I get when I start out, so um, there's a quote about teaching, and, and maybe you also who started out your career as a teacher and obviously still value it if you're pursuing, pursuing additional uh, licensure, and that is, you know, is a circle of friends and the exchange of ideas. And so now I think of, you know, you're a teacher, but really you're a learner. And that's, that's what I, you know, I, that is my now, my understanding of being a teacher is I'm in a circle of ex- friends and I'm exchanging ideas. And uh, so that's, you know, as I provided my intro to say I identify as a teacher, that's gone from, you know, being in a classroom educating children with autism to now I understand that teacher-learner are, you know, similar words, very similar words. <laughs> Well, and even sharing that overlap with um, having lived here on the islands, I mean, there's definitely certain words and terms that capture all that. I remember first moving here and asking, what's the word for, like, teacher? And my friend said, well, there's kumu, but it's not teacher. It's learning and the exchange of information. And it was just such a robust definition that I was like, oh, all right, let me wrap my head around that because it's more of a concept than a term. So, and I think it does capture that, that the student is the teacher and the teacher is the student kind of idea. Today we were going to talk about and focus on some of our discussions around cultural humility and um, who knows where our discussions will end up because they've already started in such fun places. But I was wondering if you could provide a definition for listeners on what, what you mean or what that term means to you. Yeah, and, in, you know, um, so I'll just say that from a from a formal way. So the 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 term was coined by Turvalon and Murray Garcia in 1998. So it's you know had a couple decades behind it. They were both physicians and public health professionals, and they were looking um, from in the from the medical community what needed to to happen around this concept. And their definition is um, kind of multifaceted, but it's the lifelong um, process of self reflection and kind of considering your own assumptions and beliefs within the power dynamic that we understand and how those, that power differential is often present in a treatment environment. And so those are, you know, you and I also are both, you know, well-trained in behavior analysis. And when we say things like self-reflection and beliefs, I know sometimes we're like, oh, gosh, how do we better define that or help understanding? But I still value that definition um, and I think the importance and I think that our field now is having a lot of conversations about how we could benefit from uh, some of this learning that's happened in field, other fields that are further along on the continuum of learning. And then the other piece about cultural humility I want to highlight is there's been long been discussions about cultural competence and that you're competent. And the reason that term and Turvalon Garcia and Murray Garcia defined this is the reason they shifted from competence to humility is competence implies that you can kind of learn something and be done. Like there, I've learned about gender male, even though I identify as a woman. It's like, yeah, I'm not really competent in the understanding of men. I'm not really competent in understanding what it's like to be, I identify as, as, as a white person. I don't understand. I can't become competent in Latinx culture. What I can do is challenge my assumptions and beliefs about that culture, understand my, you know, my understanding, consider my own um, cultural uniqueness, and then self-reflect and it's lifelong. So it never stops. I've never stopped learning because I can never be competent 
in a culture that is not my own. So it's, it's a, it was a shift from this concept of competence you know, I think that that terminology is incredibly important. And from a behavior analytics standpoint, we talk about all the time the use of our verbal behavior, you know, mm-hmm. whether we're using strong words or whether we've nicknamed somebody because we're trying to um, uh, communicate a status or something like that, or we want to be more formalized when we're presenting and more conversational when we're hanging out with friends. But our our words do carry a lot of meaning in them or in the way that we define them uh, with our actions. And so I think it's an important emphasis to make, and I'm glad that you've done that for us and for our listeners. And, and of course, in connecting it with with the um, terms originated is also very helpful uh, for people to go and to look more more in depth into it. Now, you talked about challenging your beliefs, considering your own experiences, and then self-reflecting. Do you have a process or a formula or how do yeah. people get good how at do they that? do that what does yeah. that mean you know I think about that so I think about some of our practices that we have so I, I think one is just trying to become familiar right so we think about in-service um, pre-service like in our pre-service training are we learning about these concepts and then in in-service are we you know providing professional learning and professional development around these concepts just from a from either a theoretical level And then absolutely, right, what are our processes to implement? So, you know, when you think about terms like self-reflection, like we have a very common term called self-monitoring, you know. And so what am I, you know, what are my self-monitoring checklists to ensure that I'm addressing culture? You know, know, if I'm doing a functional assessment interview, what am I incorporating to ensure that I'm, you know, truly learning about what this, you know, individual needs, wants, cares about, you know, goal selection. You know, sometimes we'll do this kind of cursory, sometimes like, is there anything I should know about your culture? And I'm like, I'm not sure that someone knows how to answer. Like if someone asks me that, I'm like, what what, do you, what am I supposed to say to that? But, you know, am I asking the proper questions that allow me to, you know, understand from their introverbal, if you will, do I need a follow-up question? So, you know, if I'm asking about reinforcer selection, you know, can you tell me, you know, when your family, you know, really likes to have a good time together, what are the activities you're doing? And then if they say, oh, we listen to music, I don't write down music, right? I say, oh, you know, what type of music, favorite music, what, you know, is there something that I might be missing from that? And that's true for everyone, right? That's good interviewing. But I think especially when you're working cross-culturally, we need to be really good listeners and a lot of significant inquiry to make sure we're not missing something. That significant inquiry I I have learned is very relevant. Um, We can ask a question, we can listen or hear the answers, but really being aware of the culture and asking more questions can be informative. I think about a family I worked with where it was their culture not to disagree with somebody who has a doctorate, um, let alone I'm coming into their home or helping them, which is, which is prevalent in certain cultures, but they didn't tell me that. So they like, yes, me, yep, 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 we'll totally do that. And then when I came back into the household, that's not what was happening. And I had overlooked some opportunities to be more inquisitive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And you know what, like, Amanda, I think that's so important about that, right? When you think about consider your assumptions and beliefs 
is you could have jumped to the assumption that they're being noncompliant. Like I made, you know, it's like, oh, we made these suggestions and they said they were going to do it. Now they're quote unquote noncompliant or they're not following the treatment plan. And instead, instead you like step back and went, well, wait a minute. Like, why was that conversation so easy? Like it's been, it's not usually that easy when I'm having a discussion with family about treatment. It's like, oh, because they said yes to every single thing I said. That makes no sense. You know, that makes no sense. I have to go back and, and revisit that and self-reflect, right, on what that experience was. And Yeah, I've had, you know, many of those uh, experiences. One of my favorite ones about listening is when I was working, I worked in rural and remote Alaska, and I was uh, responsible for supporting children who were living in rural and remote areas. And when you're working that, in that environment in a small village, and small is like, I would get on a jet for four hours and then I'd get on a small plane for four more hours and then a snowmobile would pick me up and then I'd live in that village for a week and uh, helping the community. And if I wanted something to happen, I would often have to request something from the elder community or have to talk to an elder. And probably you and your listeners can already hear my rate of speech is really fast. And one time I was speaking with an, an elder and he just, like waved his hand at me and he was like, stop. And I was like, oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. I've done something really wrong here. And he was like, you are speaking way too quickly. And then he said, you must understand, I've gone from smoke signal to satellite dishes in my lifetime. And I was just so humbled, like the wisdom that this gentleman had, and I was just talking at him. I was talking at him and because uh, of his manner of speech. And I just thought like, oh, you got to be a way better listener if you want to be an effective educator here. Way better. Uh, it goes back to that word humility. And uh, yes. <laughs> very humbling. <laughs> Um, to, to learn those lessons, and um, I, I can, and maybe a little embarrassing, Amanda. Maybe a little bit. Now, now it's only because it's 25 years later I can say these things out loud. <laughs> completely embarrassing. I was just going to say thank you for sharing because those mistakes were not done making. Actually, um, is what I've learned. You know, as much yes. as I'm um, uh, trying to be aware and and working on that self reflection, as you said, of course maybe even making that a little bit more tangible with some self-monitoring yes. <laughs> might, might be a great recommendation for me to explore. Um, you know, what about finding blind spots? You know, um, sometimes they're revealed to us when someone holds up a mirror, like in those situations we were just discussing. But um, sometimes we don't know what we don't know. Do you have any suggestions or thoughts on how people can even just increase their awareness? Yeah, so I think that, I mean, certainly, you know, the current movement of Black Lives Matter has been really um, helpful in those of us that do not identify within that, that culture about, you know, self-learning. It's like, yeah, you know, how do you make sure that we, you maintain an understanding of cultures that are not your own? What's your self-study uh, you know, how do you read things? How do you have experiences? How do you engage in, you know, other aspects of culture um, that we're kind of, again, always just always learning? I think we all, why the term humility, right? You're never going to be done. You just have to keep learning, keep learning. 
so that that part is. And then just be aware, you know, our culture, our culture of behavior analysis, I always say our culture, we have our own culture, as you know, our language, our behavior, our beliefs, our religion about data. Um, <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, we we have to, uh, um, our culture has a, a, a sense of feedback. Like we believe in feedback. We know that, you know, critical feedback, be it, you know, lots of different words we use, speak about behavior skills training. We have this culture of feedback, but I don't think we talk a lot enough about how sometimes that feedback makes us feel and it becomes a punisher, right? Like it becomes a punishing condition with that feedback. And so we need to change that mindset. And that's for me, I work really hard when people give me feedback about something to be open and not, I try to reframe it not as a punisher. So I'm not hearing you did something wrong. I'm hearing you haven't learned that yet. And then that's a learning opportunity. And as we've said, we're lifelong learners. So if someone says to me, you haven't learned that yet, I need to take that as a positive and an opportunity, not as, you know, you're a bad person. You did something wrong. So just it's that, that I think for me, you know, we all have wide, wide ranges of things we need to learn. And so being open to that, it's a, it's a great question. Oh, thank you for that. You know, and when we speak about reframing it and bring it back to the discussion on verbal behavior, just which is our covert verbal, so internal self-talk, I think people are connecting to what you're saying, even if we're just talking about a self-delivered punishing statement, right? Like, mm-hmm. I failed, I neglected something, I didn't do my best, or I don't feel like I did. Those are pretty defeating statements that don't necessarily motivate us to, to try again or to try differently. It actually might make us retreat, right, so that we're not finding that aversive. And when we're shaping it as, hey, this is an opportunity, this is something I don't yet know, and for I would say probably every behavior analyst I've ever met really enjoys, like you said, the religion of data, but learning. And so if we shift that as an opportunity of, look, I just identified another thing I get to go learn. <laughs> that yeah. might be a really encouraging yeah. way to be like, wow, learning's not done. And that excites us. And we really love to, you know, operationally or descriptively think about things in that way. And it's like the reason you haven't learned it is because you haven't had enough opportunities in your learning history, right? You haven't had enough exposure. You haven't come in, in contact with that, that, you know, that experience. And if you think about it that way, it's like, oh, here's an opportunity. And what happens when it's a punisher, then you start avoiding it and you're ne- it doesn't, now you don't learn it, right? So, oh, I'm never going to talk about that because that experience was, was punishing. It resulted in, again, that internal, that private event of, uh, that became a punisher. It's like, oh, now you're now you're limiting your learning opportunity. Like you need you need more exposure, right? We think about, you know, opportunities to respond. What what you should be thinking is, wow, I haven't had enough OTR of that. I need to go find some more. Not I need to avoid it. <laughs> exactly. You know, and you also mentioned that these are behaviors, right? These are skills that we either have or need to strengthen or are working on making strong in our repertoire. It is not that we are bad people. And I know that when we have discussions on ethics, a lot of times someone says to me, that person is unethical or, mm. um, or I feel like I am unethical. 
and I'll say, let's talk about the behaviors that we feel may be unethical because then we can identify points of change, right, or something to measure or to, to target or to evaluate. But it's not throwing the person out, and I think that that really helps shift also when we're framing it about ourselves. I'm not a bad person. I, I haven't failed at something. I just have an opportunity to practice that more. And in order to develop fluency, I need more opportunities, which is exactly what you just said. Yep, absolutely. I think that's some of the conversations around racism right now, too, is, you know, that's um, as as someone who is white, identifies with the majority population, like one of the worst things that could happen is someone, you perceive that someone's calling you a racist. And so, you know, thinking about that in our current current uh, um, environment is, yeah, like people are not calling me a racist. Racism just is. Racism is structural. Racism is present. And so I may have engaged in a behavior that was racist, and I need to modify that. But they're not, you know, I have the opportunity to change. I have the opportunity to learn and grow. And so it's, you know, just even things that are so, you know, so kind of heinous to us as people who want to be good people. You know, I want to be a good person. I certainly don't want to be a racist. Um, is, you know, having, thinking about, yeah, you need more opportunities, not less, more. Well, and we're seeing, I think, more of those conversations, which is a positive in the sense that then there's going to be a lot more opportunities for feedback, for reflection, mm-hmm. and for growth. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's actually, it's a beautiful parallel. Um, when we think of culture, I think sometimes people think of a, a geographic location or sometimes mm. we think of race or sometimes we think of a set of behaviors and traditions and sometimes it's all of those things. So culture can be behavior analysis, like the culture of our field um, or the culture of, of, of another particular group. And in that way, we have a lot of overlapping yes. <laughs> um, different cultures that we identify with as individuals. And then, of course, the, the groups that we identify with, they have their own other overlapping things. And that's where we end up uh, with the possibility of making lots of mistakes because there's lots and lots of moving parts. And so mistakes are not a problem. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, and I mean, I, I made a little joke about, you know, about our, our perception and beliefs around data in our, in our culture, but you're right. You know, it's, again, it's social habits, religion, language. And I mean, language is the easiest one for us to look at as far as our own culture for, as behavior analysis, right? It's like we have words that make absolutely no sense to anybody outside of our field. And, you know, I think about that related to being culturally aware, being culturally humble, even using responsive is like, yeah, don't use those words when you're, when you're working in a discipline outside of your own. You know, it's like be, be humble and change your vocabulary and, and be supportive and, you know, work in a, in a, in a way that is, is welcoming. You know, I'm wondering if you can give any other examples or if you have any stories to share because it definitely paints this image. I was sitting there thinking of you speaking with an elder in a remote part. I, I, I watched you get on that plane and then get picked up by that snowmobile. It is um, quite incredible. You've had a lot of different diverse experiences. Any that also have resonated with you or that are super memorable kind of in that same way? Yeah. I've, oh, gosh, so many. Oh, my gosh, I can't even um... – 
let me, okay, let me choose one in Hawaii. This is actually one of my personal favorites. Uh, so I was working with a family that was, um, they were actually, they resided in Hawaii, but they were from uh, a smaller island. So they were also kind of immigrants to Hawaii, but they were Pacific Islanders. And um, it was working with a young woman. She was probably in her mid to late 20s at the time. And uh, my job was to help her become, uh, you know, more independent, more engaged kind of in her community. And she was a person who had a physical disability and um, a co-occurring intellectual disability. And uh, one of the first times I spent with her and her family, she lived with a large extended family, one of the first times I spent with her family, um, they were sharing a meal together and it was, you know, loud and raucous and everyone was having a great time. There's probably eight, ten people. And as you know, in Hawaii, often meals happen kind of outside, um, either, you know, in a covered area. Or, and so um, as I was spending time and getting to know her and her family, I noticed that um, although she was I perceived her to be physically capable of feeding herself, probably maybe with a little bit of adaptation. Um, her family was feeding her, so they were taking the food and, and placing it in her mouth with a with a utensil, and um, super easy all for them. So you know, of course, you know, and me and my myself, I'm like, oh, that's something to work on. And I was having a conversation with her and her family. She did not use spoken language. We had to interpret her um, her. Uh, engagement through facial expressions and gestures. She didn't have a communication system at that time. And I was talking to her and her family about, oh, well, we should help her learn how to eat because, you know, that's a really important skill. And they just looked at me like, that's not important to us at all. And I was like, oh, no, you know, you know, me, North American, most important thing, self-care. Got to do it independently, always. That's completely my belief system. You know, independence is everything. And they were like, yeah, that's not important. And I was like, oh, no, we have to work on this. They were like, nope. So then, Amanda, I got on my next self-righteous horse and said, well, you know, what happens if you guys aren't able to feed her? And they, their mom looked at me and she said, well, if I can't feed her, then auntie will feed her. And I was like, well, what happens with something with auntie? And they're like, cousin will feed her? <laughs> and I was like, what happens with cousin? I mean, I was starting, now I'm just engaging in this ridiculous, like, and then I kind of like looked around and I went, oh, no, we have an extended family of dozens of people here all who value this young woman and if i had stopped for a minute i would have realized that this young woman one of the few times where she had kind of intimate physical close connection with people was when they were helping her eat right they were in close physical proximity they were smiling at her she had great eye contact with them it was a really lovely experience with her. She had no interest in becoming independent, and there was truly no need. And I think for me, that was one of the times where it's like, oh, my gosh, we think independent eating is like a requirement, right? Like that's a requirement as an independent goal. Nope. No, it's really not. It's really not. And so that for me, and I was, gosh, I was probably in my, I'd been 20 years into my career when that happened. And at that point, I thought, you are so in need of humility. Wow. <laughs> I think it's easy to come up with examples that feel a little bit more clean cut 
and we go, oh, yep, that was that was me being negligent. But this was something that was much more fuzzy than that. You know, became a lot yeah. more clear when when as you told that story, and and of course I can imagine exactly that huge Ohana, and like literally just looking around. Well, if it's not yep. if it's not mom, it's auntie, tutu, and cousin, and it's like you know what you really do have that extended network there and that changes the variables. You know, my thoughts as as I'm hearing, you know, you tell this story, I would have always prioritized independence. I I would have fought that one in every hypothetical scenario I could have thought of and in every case in person. And then look, there's a situation where that close intimate physical contact is, is improving that individual's life in a way that I wouldn't have considered if I had just focused on independence. Yeah, I mean, I think about, you know, if we were to hand a slip of five paper, pieces of paper, and say, order this and importance of social significance, like independent eating, driving a car, you know what I mean? Like five different things, opening a window, and it's like every single one of us would put eating first. When really, but, but yet, our field believes context is everything. Right, so really, you can. How can you order social significance if you don't know the context? And so I think that that is, you know, we sometimes, you know, we can be a bit reductionist in our field, but if we actually stop, and then most importantly, like I think, if I handed you five slips of paper and said, "What's most important? Quality of life, independent eating, driving a car," you would put quality of life first. But that's a little bit. You know, that's a little bit fuzzy. It's a little bit fuzzy. What's quality of life? Wow. Yeah, yeah. And nothing is is clear. Nothing is clear cut. And um, that really gets into, I think you said just very nicely, the importance of context, the importance of, of th- that's a situation where, like, awareness, we could walk in and be so aware, but we cannot be aware of the things we're not aware of. And sometimes it really does take somebody else holding up that mirror and, and the, be- the beautiful part is we can control whether or not we look at what they're holding up. That's the yeah. part we can control. Yeah, and I think, you know, another piece I think that um, when I when we talk, I you know, going back to data, it's like, oh, I love a graph. Trust me, I love a data. You know, a data point, I love data. Uh, but, and I think of that, when I think of data, my visual in my mind is a, it's a graph, right? I have a data point and I'm, I'm putting it in a into a, a graphic format. And I'm thinking, oh, but many cultures I've worked in, their data are storytelling, right? So their data are oral and their data are, you know, in that way. And so I think about like that's, you know, trying to, to understand and, and be present uh, to learn different ways is, is something that, that we all, um, again, continuous lifelong process of self-reflection. <laughs> that's what happens. <laughs> It just becomes all of those learning opportunities. Yes, <laughs> it does. It really does. <laughs> wow, I really appreciate you sharing those examples. And I know that, like, as you mentioned, they can be really embarrassing and um, or can show our areas of, of, of need for improvement. But, you know, the message that you're sending that I'm getting is that this is all of us. This is all of us. And so thank you for being vulnerable enough to share that. So yeah, that's actually <laughs> from a culture of storytelling, right? So we know that we know that storytelling does change behavior, and if all of us were willing to step in and uh, share some of these stories, we'd learn from each other. We would absolutely learn from each other. It's like, oh, 
I will know not to do that specific thing um, and thank you, and that will allow me to, in my self-monitoring process, provide another thing that I should be monitoring for, for sure. <laughs> yes, and it's also like you were saying earlier, what was, was really resonating with me was that areas of self-study. So what are we learning about? What are we immersing ourselves with, with the information? Where are we getting our information? Who's providing us that information? I think when we talk about consulting in clinical um, situations, it can be the client, it can be the context. Uh, when I moved to Hawaii, it, it was a very clear SD for, hey, learn about this culture before you get there, and you're going to learn a lot more when you're here. But sometimes things are a little bit more subtle, and it's when you embark on something that you realize, I don't know anything about that, or I know very little about that that might identify for someone that that's a new area of study or inquiry. Yeah, and I mean, if I can just make a slight shift on that, too, I really like to read cross-discipline. And so, you know, certainly we all read our, you know, Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis or Journal of Positive Behavior Sports, or, but reading social work literature, reading public health literature for me, um, you know, reading educational literature, reading some of our, you know, speech pathology it, you know, anthropology, when we think about culture, like the people who have been studying culture for, for as a discipline is, is anthropology. And so, you know, reading cross-discipline, you know, finding an article on a topic you're interested in and then reading in a cross-discipline way is, I think it's so informative. Like it gives you an entirely different vocabulary or perspective and just thinking like, oh, I never thought of it that way. I really never thought of it that way. And, you know, I didn't have that vocabulary uh, is really, you know, my area of study has always been autism. I've always worked in the field of autism. So I read literature in other fields about autism, you know. So I think it's, I can't say enough about, you know, reading in a cross-discipline fashion. That recently came to light very um, importantly for me when we were all delving into suddenly telehealth. You know, for some individuals we've been using telehealth, like in Hawaii, for, for some time. Um, but other um, providers, this was brand new. And so when I started looking at resources and materials and wanted to put together some presentations, some of the strongest information about remote instruction and having caregiver facilitation was in the literature on gerontology. Um, mm, and and mm -hmm. individuals who've been working with supporting family members who are caring for elderly family members. And it's like, look, there's a whole robust piece of research in a, in a very, very close uh, neighboring piece of body of text, you know, literature based, that we have to not only be willing to look at, um, but to know how to access and how to get mm -hmm. that information. Um, we, we get really good at trying to <laughs> find job articles that are going online and looking for that, you know, latest publication of behavior analysis and practice. Um, but I think you're, you emphasize something that we can't emphasize quite enough, which is if we really want to learn about the world, we have to uh, read, immerse, and uh, talk to other people in other parts of the world. <laughs> yeah, and you weren't, like, digging in to learn about treating gerontology for, you know, mobility. You were reading, like, I need to learn about telehealth. Oh, look, this field knows a lot about telehealth. Let's go there. You know, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's topical, and usually, I mean, we're a very young field, very young. Um, and when you delve into some of these topics, it's like, oh, they have been doing this for a lot longer, a lot longer. It's great. More opportunities for learning and engagement. It's like, all right, after this call, I've got a lot of growing to do. 
um, as we all do for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Patricia, <laughs> I want to, you know, really thank you for um, your humility, your um, conversation today for the discussions. And I wanted to give you an opportunity before we end um, the conversation today to just tell us if there's any projects you're working on or any resources you want to share or any just final words. Yeah, let me let me say that I'm just so um, delighted that our field is really talking about uh, cultural humility, cultural competence, cultural responsiveness, and we're really having engaging in dialogue. There's been some fantastic articles that have been published talking about a need for increase in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I am currently working on how do you teach those skills? How do you promote those behaviors? in practitioners and that's my current project and my current kind of research line right now and I look forward to learning uh, more about how we can incorporate that into into our pre-service and and in-service work and then professionally Amanda I'm just really committed to trying to figure out how to support adults with employment and community living those are my two work projects that trying to figure out you know People spend 25% of their life in childhood and 75% of their life in adulthood, and we know very little about how to ensure a high-quality life for adults with autism. So I've got a couple projects, building programs and program development in those areas. And so thanks for letting me share about those. And anytime I cross paths with anybody, I'd be happy to talk about those topics or anything else that, that people have of interest so that I can can learn and engage uh, engage with others. So thank you so much for this opportunity, Amanda. It's just been delightful. You're welcome. And also thank you for giving me another topic for our future show when you come back on. So <laughs> we'll talk about some of the work that you're doing at, at a future point if you are if you would be open to returning. Um, there's so much that, that could be said about that. And as you mentioned, there's just so much of a need in that area. Oh. Absolutely. Oh, good. I was like, let me just pause and see if she'll say yes. <laughs> Perfect. Good. All right. It's hard to out, you know, analyze an analyst, but Patricia, I really do really enjoy the conversations we've had today and a lot of the, the thought-provoking um, discussions that I'm going to be reflecting on myself. I hope our listeners also enjoyed. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about this topic or related topics in behavior analysis, you can do so by heading over to www.behaviorbabe.com.